when I think about some of the career opportunities that I've had, I think about the fact that at Fox Sports, I was able to talk to Rupert Murdoch and give him a bit of the lay yeah. of the land. And, and I was never, I was never phased by, you know, the, that task to do that. And I was on the strategic team that helped convince Foxtel and say to them, if you continue to have cable only services, you're going to lose because the streaming's coming in and you either need to, you need, you need to get on board with this. And that's why KO and binge exist right now was because our team yeah, kind of yeah. said to them, it's time to go. It's time to go streaming. And so I never had a problem with that, but when it came to talking about my own health, my own mental wellness, my own mental health, oh, I struggled uh, phenomenally. And I knew I wasn't the only one to do that. All righty. Welcome, everybody, to the Look Sharp podcast with Vita and Moss. Much love to the brother Fale who couldn't make it tonight. But we are very, very um, honored to have our guest on for tonight. Uh, I will let him introduce himself, but welcome, Jardian. Thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate this opportunity. It's not an opportunity that I take for granted. Uh, and I appreciate what you guys are doing as well. So uh, excited to be here tonight. My kids are not here at the moment, so everything's quiet. Got a bit of uh, lucky alone time. That might change during the course of this one. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully no one barges through that door. But uh, no, nah, thrilled to be here, man. Thanks for coming on. Now, um, Jardin has uh, has been a really good friend. Um, me and him kind of go way back. But we might talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but he has um, he has a really interesting journey. And it's something that we, you know, we felt um, we wanted to share with the people within our circles um, and look at, you know, how can someone, you know, from the ground up um, work towards the stuff that they want to do and work towards their, and achieve their dreams? But also, you know, if you have a passion, there's nothing stopping you from, you know, running towards that as well. So um, I guess to start us off, Jardin, tell us a little bit about, you know, where'd you grow up, your family, a bit of background on yourself. Yeah, cool. So I'm a Sydney born and Sydney raised uh, boy. Vita. My, my parents moved over from New Zealand to Australia a couple of years before they had me. So my parents are both both Māori. My mum is from Marselton. My dad is from Hamilton. Uh, so the greener parts of New Zealand. And uh, they had me relatively young. So in their very, very early 20s, uh, did I join their family. And at the time, you know, for my, my parents, I guess financially, they were just doing what they needed to do to kind of get by. So I was born into a situation where you know, financially, we probably weren't at the same level that some of my peers around that age were, but I didn't know anything any better at that point in time. And um, I was just grateful to have the time with my parents. We grew up in a tiny, tiny apartment for many, many years uh, of my childhood. Um, but kind of from there, I grew up in the ride area before we moved out to the, the hills area where I still am now. And the journey has been a really interesting one for our family and and. I find in some ways that uh, my journey isn't all too dissimilar from my dad's journey because, and we'll get into it, I guess, throughout the episode, but um, yeah. you know, both of us kind of went through high school and that's where it ended for us in terms of uh, our education for different reasons. Um, my dad had different reasons for, for finishing up school when he did and I, to, to the reasons that I had, um, but oftentimes when I am out and, and I've, I've been really blessed in my career to have been able to do some of the things that I do, but oftentimes when I get invited to, to go and do different things, I, 
I'm on panels where I'm sitting next to like university lecturers when I'm sitting yeah. next to oh, well. all these other <laughs> graduates. And I, and I sometimes feel that my job in being on some of these things is to be, I guess, the voice to people of, you know, what to do when maybe you didn't get to go to university for whatever, yeah. for whatever reason. So <laughs> all of those people that I'm with are like the ones who are saying, once you're in high school, once you finish high school, going to go do your uni and I feel like my role uh, intentionally or not intentionally is to be like well if you don't go to university maybe you'll have a career like me (laughs) (laughs) but like there's also a time and place for that kind of stuff yeah I mean um, you know there's some people that are very academically blessed and there are other people that are very strong with experience Um, and yeah I think there's definitely a a place for both don't you reckon I think so I I, think I really strongly believe that to be true, Avita, and and we I've experienced it in in my life. I've been able to do mm. some really cool things. So uh, after high school, so I I'll, I'll go back a, a little bit more to the school. Right, maybe I'll start there for people. Yeah, from the high school perspective. So high school, I was like probably most other people my age. Um, cared about my sports. Kind yeah. of cared about my ladies, but didn't necessarily care about <laughs> class or anything like that. <laughs> and you know, my grade, my grades reflected that they were okay. They weren't terrible, but they were definitely nothing that was going to ever get me to to the promised land or to the academic levels that maybe my parents had hoped that I would get to. But I do remember where it kind of turned for me in in my personal life, and and that turning point probably happened towards the end of high school when I was in a careers class and I'll never forget the experience that I had in that careers class because it's kind of driven me to where I am today and you would think that a person you know 20 years out of high school would probably learn to let something go right and just move on even now now it kind of drives me and it was in a careers class where you know it's not a real class it's a little bit hokey they bring you in for like two terms and they say look here's a bunch of things that you probably need to start thinking about for those of you who want to go on to university or who want to go on to do a whole bunch of different things. And so the teacher that I had in that particular class, I knew that she didn't love me. Um, I knew that she didn't really like me either. She had been my English teacher from previous years. And even though I had always been respectful to her, I probably hadn't been the best student all in all. So she probably thought I was a bit of a slacker uh, at certain things. And I remember one point of this careers class where she went around the uh, the whole room, the whole class, and she asked every single student what it was that they wanted to do in their career. And by this point in my career, like I, I was a big basketball head and my goal was to play in the NBA. But at this point of high school, yeah. I probably I started to realize ah, it's probably not going to happen for me. I'm probably, <laughs> I'm probably not going to. I stopped growing at six foot. Um all my other teammates were kind of still growing and and I had stopped. And, you know, I realized that around that year 10 point, ah, this is probably not going to happen, but I did want to stay inside sports. So I quickly pivoted towards wanting to do sports journalism and going into this careers class, I had said when it came time for me to say what I wanted to do, I'd said, I would like to be a sports journalist. I'd like, I'd love to be a sports writer. And this teacher kind of in front of all the other students that was there just very bluntly looked at me uh, and said, Jody, and you're going to need pick, to pick something else because you're never going to be able to do that. Um, wow. and, and like, I remember how wow. I felt at the time. 
I remember how it made me feel. And to be honest, like so much of it was probably just my pride got in the mm-hmm. way because I, I was deeply embarrassed in, in this class. Like, you know, boys don't cry, but I definitely yeah. wanted to somewhere yeah. inside. I felt uh, a piece of me kind of just break apart there. But I remember going home that night and just kind of talking to my parents about it, not in a whinging way because you don't really mm-hmm. do that. But I just told them what had happened. And, and I remember waking up the next morning and just saying to myself, you know what, I'm going to really dig my heels in here. And so I, mm. the classes that I picked for then what we called the HSC were all essay writing subjects. So they were all things that would help me in journalism. So I picked every Developed history class writing, that I yeah. could, picked every English class that I could. I picked legal studies and all of that. And, you know, really, I guess with that as my driver, I use that as motivation to get into the sports journalism world and when you look at I guess I've been super blessed and I feel like I just need to acknowledge that in every conversation because my qualifications like I said before they end at high school Um, when you look at my resume and the things that I've done there's no there's no way that those things marry up to my qualification to my um, education level Um, but the experience side that you spoke about Vita was something that I've been fortunate to have so out of high school um, I, I went and served a two-year church mission uh, for my church. And, you know, that's where we spent a bit of time. Um, and post that that church mission, and, and even that mission itself was really good for me because it allowed me to be in situations. You guys know what it's like when you've got Mormon missionaries coming down the street and like mm. you do your best to duck around them and avoid <laughs> them. And, and for the people like us that are wearing those black badges, like we're trying to get in your ways that you can't dodge us and duck us. But you know, knocking on doors and talking to strangers and, and you know, being forced to use um, your words in communicating some of the things that you want to was really helpful for me so that when I came home from my mission, you know, I didn't have any fear. I didn't have any concerns about talking to big audiences, about presenting to strong, powerful business leaders. Um, so that was uh, super helpful for me. So I feel like the school that I went through was not necessarily university, but it was almost the school of life and experience mm. um, that helped me get to that point where, you know, I appreciated much like my dad who, who left high school. He actually left high school early um, because his family situation was you know, not ideal. Um, I, I didn't leave high school early. I finished high school, but I definitely didn't go on to do anything at university after um all of those things kind of combined put me in a position to i guess land my first job in sports which was inside the nrl now taking it i guess back a little bit you know i think we've all had times where people have doubted us and people have said certain things and um sometimes you take it to heart and then the next time you either you don't talk about it in front of that person um or it drives you to to be better uh, for yourself, what what drove you to to continue into that passion as opposed to, you know, rebelling and kind of just, you know, falling amongst, you know, what everybody else wants to do? I mean, I think sports is an easy um, career path where everybody's like, oh, yep, I want to be an NBA player. I want to be a, a footy player and so mm. forth. What kind of drove you to, you know what, I'm going to stick to this? Because it's very niche. It's not a normal thing where people say, oh, I want to yeah. be a sports yeah. journalist. What What drove that passion there? Well, I think for me, I, I looked around at the different things that you could do within, within sports. And it seemed as though you could either be like a water boy, you could be a 
team manager and all those things are fine, right? I've got no problems mm. with people who aspire to do that. Um, but it was pretty limited. And I, at that point in, in high school, I'd become a little bit better with my language, with my words, with my ability to articulate myself um, in, in different groups cohesively. And so I always felt like maybe journalism made sense for me. I, I remember watching ESPN a lot as a kid and just seeing the promo packages that they would put together and reading some books by Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. And there was a, there was a journalist back in the day, his name was Bill Simmons, who's kind of turned into the pod father. Now he's kind of given writing a bit of a, he's kind of parked writing a little bit because long form journalism is almost a dying breed um, at the moment. We're in the world of Twitter where if you can't tell it's mm. been 160 characters or less, man, forget it. Um, so long form journalism is kind of having a bit of a rough patch at the moment, but Bill Simmons was someone that I grew up reading a lot and just worshiping his style of writing. And I wanted to replicate it. Um, and I felt like the way to do that was to become a journalist myself. So that was, I guess the drive. So with those as my guides and the feel that my careers teacher gave me to uh, really challenge the Polynesian status quo, one of my Lebanese friends from school would say, um, because because as she did this right as she went around the class there were students in this class who whose grades were way lower than mine and she knew it because she had taught them other classes as well but when they told her what they wanted to do become a lawyer become a judge become um a data scientist her response to them was cool go for it but when it came to me and I told her I wanted to be a journalist, her response to me. And I was the only person in the class that got this. My friends still talk about it this day because they thought, you know, <laughs> I was going to get up and, and leave the room. Um, that was just added fuel. And my friend said, oh, man, maybe it's because you're a little bit different <laughs> to all these other people that are, that are in here. Um, and this was a different era. So I think these days, stuff like that doesn't really fly anymore, right? You got to shoot straight. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very politically correct and politically aware world but that yeah. back then it was like nah mm. this is a little polynesian kid who's always bringing my classes grades down <laughs> giving, me a bit, <laughs> giving me a bit of grief so i think that's how i ended up get wanting vita to go into sports journalism it was all i knew at the time was that i wanted to stay in sports i was okay with english and journalism seemed to be the natural fit for me to get into and i loved reading uh, reading is something that I've, I've really always loved, which is funny because when I was in like year two and three, they put me in an ESL class, uh, which is English, <laughs> English as a second language. I remember that class. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they took me out of my class and they put me in an English as a second language class. I was like, what do you mean as a second language? I was born and raised in Sydney. I'm sitting in class with people who've literally just moved into Australia like two weeks ago and honestly probably need it. But, but that's how bad my English was then. So um, it, it's kind of funny how it worked out of going from this ESL class to someone who really loved uh, literature and um, and wordsmithing and all of that stuff. So um, it, that's how it kind of worked for me. That's what made me want to get into the journalistic angle. And from there, I guess, which we can cover off later, things things pivoted and moved in, in different directions that I didn't anticipate would come. Yeah, it, it's funny with the ESL classes. I'm not too sure if they picked it, you know, based on nationality and so forth, but I'm like you. I'm born and raised in Australia, but I was put in the ESL class and I'm like... <laughs> 
I thought I spoke English okay, but I guess I, I need to be a part of ESL. In in fairness, I, I think there was a patch there in U2 where my, my writing was, was probably a little bit choppy and, and not really legible. Um, and, and the good news is I didn't I didn't stay in the ESL class for longer than than two weeks. They actually pulled me back out and were like, oh yeah, this guy doesn't belong here. <laughs> back out. So that's the closest I ever came to graduating in anything. Graduating from my ESL class. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, hobbies and your interests and so forth. I know you're big on sports. So, um, you know, can you tell us, you know, what's your favorite, you know, NBA team growing up and also your favorite NRL team if you're a rugby league fan? Yeah, my favorite. Uh, so I grew up in the Michael Jordan kind of era, right? But when, yeah. when Michael Jordan went away, did his baseball thing, I had to pick a new team. Um, not knowing that he would come back, but I picked a new team and there was one player who I really loved um, kind of growing up and that was Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway, Penny Hardaway was my guy. Like that yeah, was the position man. I played. He was a point guard and he was a bit of a freak. He could do things that not a, not a lot of other people could do. So Penny Hardaway, when Michael Jordan retired, Penny Hardaway became my guy and the Orlando Magic became my team. Yeah, the fadeaways and everything. Yeah, and then, you know, Michael Jordan came back from baseball and I had to make a decision, right? Do I... <laughs> go back to Michael Jordan and get back on my Chicago Bulls bandwagon or do I just stick with Penny Hardaway and the Orlando Magic? And I stuck with Penny Hardaway and the Orlando Magic. So Orlando is my team. It's been like rubbish ever since Penny Hardaway left. Like we had the Dwight Howard era, prime Dwight Howard era, and that was good. Yeah. But outside, and we had the Tracy McGrady era as well. Uh, that was good. But uh, outside of that, it's been a bit rough for, for Orlando fans. Uh, rugby league is is one of my other sports as well. Uh, I grew up a big David Peachy fan. Uh, as a result of that, oh. the Cronulla Sharks were were my favorite team. Also, they wore my favorite colors as a little kid. So I was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. But my uncle, my uncle Mark, um, Mark Horro, for those who want to go and have a look at it, he had, yeah, he played for the Parramatta Eels, and so my dad felt like to be a good brother in law he should also go for the Parramatta Eels and support his sister's husband. And so he was a bit of a Parramatta fan. So I can be partial to Parramatta when I want to be, um, but Cronulla was my team growing up and they're still my team now. And, and it just so happened that they were the team that gave me my first opportunity in sports, which is a crazy story how that even <laughs> kind of came about. So that's, uh, that's, uh, those are my teams. I'm also a big English football fan, also just football Generally, and when I say football, Ooh, nice. I, I mean what yep. some people would call soccer. <laughs> so, yep. um, Chelsea are my team, and and I, I I think I gravitated towards sports because growing up playing basketball so much, I found that a lot of my friends, my friends in my teenage years, actually just came through basketball. It was a way for me to communicate with the rest of the world when I didn't know how to. Um, and I guess it kind of taught me a little bit about emotion and feeling. So sport was something that was pretty easy for me to gravitate towards as a, as a youngster and, and probably still means a little bit more in my life. You can kind of see even in my office, I, I have yeah, my... Uh, you your own uh, NBA trophy right there. <laughs> that actually belongs to the San Antonio Spurs. Um, no way. Yeah, crazy, crazy story from other travels. But um, that is, yeah, that, that doesn't belong to me. I, I think it would be... I think the easiest way to say how that came to be in this house is through morally ambiguous means. <laughs> um, so 
not uh, not something that I think the person who gave it to me would want me to <laughs> publish, but that is uh, a life size that that belongs to them. So sport is oh, is still you know a big part of my life, and and even now as my kids are starting to come into to sport, I, I find it's probably going to continue to be. Yeah, awesome. You know, before we get into I guess how you progress in your career, now I know you've got uh, a mouldy background, but you know you're born and raised in Australia, you know. It's been a pretty rough trot for the Wallabies now. What are your feelings towards the uh, the All Blacks and the Wallabies? Who are you supporting? This is always a tricky one for me because as a kid, my parents obviously are both from New Zealand. And if I was to sit down and watch the Bledisloe Cup, it was like either support the All Blacks or please leave the room. Um, <laughs> that, was the, that was the kind of treatment that, that I got. And then... When the family would come over, it was like that times 10. So it was like All Blacks everywhere. So I grew up with um, supporting the All Blacks. And now, you know, I, I think I've gotten to a point where if my kids were ever good enough to play rugby at the highest level, I would want them to represent the Wallabies because I consider, my, oh. I, I consider myself an Australian. I think they're an Australian. Uh, that's not to say that I'm... I'm at all ashamed of my Polynesian roots. I'm not. I'm very, yeah. I'm very proud of my Māori background, but Australia gave me my childhood and it gave me things that um, I would never take for granted. So if my kids were ever good enough to play uh, basketball or any sport at the top level, you know, I'd hope they'd be in that in the green and gold. And so now when it comes time to watching the Bledisloe with my family or whatever, I take the cop-out answer, which is like, you know, I, I actually don't really care who wins between <laughs> Australia and New Zealand. Um, I'm going to be a victor either way. When it comes to the Wallabies or the All Blacks playing anyone else but each other, I'll always support those two teams. Um, so yeah, so that's where I'm at with that. That's my relationship with Australian rugby, and I'm glad that in more recent weeks, like the Wallabies are starting to pick it up a little because they're they're, they're a bit dirty there for a while. Uh, I think the problem is we play the All Blacks too much, and then we kind of get down on ourselves because we lose majority of the time and then once we play other countries we actually see okay you know what we can be competitive you know so <laughs> i don't know how many years are the is the blood is, what what is the blood is low count oh, up to now it's like 20 i'm, I'm oh, pretty sure last time i heard so it's it's crazy to me to think that they're somewhere in like sydney walking down like outside of the opera house is like a 10 12 year old kid who has never seen the wallabies yeah it's like up um crazy times crazy crazy times Okay, so let's move, you know, into, um, you know, you've, you've come through um, high school, you've served your mission, um, you know, you've found your passion with sports and sports journalism, uh, and you've landed your first job. Tell us about how, how that all came about and who'd you, who'd you work for? So, again, you know, I hate to sound repetitive, but I, I just feel like I always need to emphasize that, that I was very blessed in the way that mm. things came about for me. And my start with the Cronulla Sharks, the Cronulla Sharks were the first sports team that kind of brought me in. They were the first sports entity that allowed me the opportunity to do things. But the way that that came about was, was quite a story. And, and it kind of started with when my dad passed away. So my dad had a, um, he had a heart attack and it was kind of one of those, he was there one morning and then he wasn't there in the afternoon. It was just, he was at a work function. He was playing paintball and, you know, frankly, he just, got hit in the wrong part of his body and it triggered it triggered mm. a pretty um a pretty violent response within himself which 
um, was pretty devastating at the time. I mean, I was only a month or a few months away from having my first child. I was looking forward to being able to, to, and, and he was excited to become, to become a, a grandfather. And so that was pretty, and my younger siblings, I'm the oldest of five children in my family. So my younger siblings, my youngest brother, I think was 10 or 11 when he passed away. And so some of the, like, it was pretty raw, right? The, the feeling in the house was, was pretty raw. And I remember going to his funeral. I was in one of the cars going to the funeral and on the way to the funeral, my phone started ringing and I didn't really know who it was. I didn't recognize the number and I didn't um, really want to talk to anyone at the time, but my wife encouraged me to just take the phone call. And I picked up the phone and on the other end of the phone was the then CEO of the Cronulla Sharks who no had, way. yeah, who had just heard this, um, that one of their fans is going through a bit of a situation and that it might be just a nice touch for him to just call and give his condolences um, and just kind of express the support coming from the Sharks community. So for me, like that was a huge boost to get that on the way to the funeral to get just a random call from the CEO of this NRL team. Um, yeah. And solely, and the only reason he found out about it was some other fans said, oh, look, we know this guy. And like, he's just had some pretty traumatic thing happen in his life, maybe do it. And I guess it starts there for me because a couple of years, like part of my coping mechanism of getting through what happened with my dad was that I ended up just, you know, getting season tickets for the Sharks for the first time because Cronulla is a fair way away from where I live but I was just looking for some form of escapism. And I remember going to the sh- going to Shark Park for uh, the first time of that particular year. And I was watching the entertainment that they had up on the big screen and all of those ESPN things that I had watched as a kid kind of came back to me. And I was looking at this entertainment going, this is a bit useless. Like this is a bit flat and a bit stinky. So I went home like that night and I put together my own hype video um, and just said, you know what, if I was doing that job, if I was the person who was in charge of the entertainment on the big screen, this is what I would do. And I just posted it online just, just for fun. Um, but that same CEO who called me on the way to my dad's funeral, someone had sent him that video and said, oh. maybe you should check this out. Maybe we should kind of do this. And he had remembered my name. And so they ended up asking if they could play that video at the next home game, um, which they did. And I guess the chairman of the CEO um, was kind of with his buddies at the time. And they were all like, wow, where did that thing come from? Cause we've come to sharks games forever. And like, it's not, it's yeah, never it's that been the normal. And it was like, I had yeah. the pirates of the Caribbean music going on in the background. It was like this, this it was basically a 90 second hype reel um, to be played <laughs> just before the players ran out. And the CEO said, I don't know, like, whoever made that video, we've got to get them to come and work at the club. So that was my in with the Cronulla Sharks was that I was sitting in the crowd watching the big screen saying, I think we can do better than that. And then I just went home that night and with my own spare time, I just whipped something together. This is back when we're still using like, I think LimeWire and Napster to (laughs) (laughs) legally download (laughs) content from all over the place. And I just whipped it together, put it up online. And the next thing I knew, I had a job offer to work at the Cronulla Sharks. Um, and that was with like no intention on, you know, pitching for a job. It was just like, you know what, I think I can do better. And this will be fun for, you know, 
for people in your circle to see and then it kind of branched out from there that's crazy absolutely and, and it was a crazy ride when i got there too because when i got there it was in a pretty it was supposed to be in a pretty limited capacity i mean for me i was so excited that not only was this my was this in the nrl but this is the team i grew up supporting and they were in they were in a part of sydney that i would love to live in um so you know for me i just it was like i said i, I was really blessed to have that one um, so I go in there, I go into the Sharks and my first two, three months there is just kind of doing a little bit of that, but also just helping the sales team do a few of the things that, that they needed to get through. Yep. And then some things happened and a few people at the Sharks decided they wanted to go and do some different things. And at the time, the Sharks didn't necessarily have an endless budget. And so a few of us had to wear a few additional hats and I saw it as a bit of an opportunity to say, to the CEO who had brought me in in the first place, I think that job over there, I think I could do it better than anyone that you could interview for it right now. Now, I definitely wasn't more qualified than a lot of other mm. people that they would have interviewed, but I truly believed, much like the video that I put together, I truly believed that I felt the connection and the desire of the Sharks fan base and that I could articulate that. So I became the membership digital and game day manager of the sharks all within about a year's time um and the capacity of that role to, to put it in in context was basically you know run the website um make sure all the entertainment was ready for what was needed strategize ways to grow the membership um, fan base uh, which is a big part of the whole nrl picture now it's, it's membership this membership that mm. and be the go-to, the go, be the point man for all the game day operations that happened whenever the Sharks played at Shark Park. So when you walk in the gates and you see security, when you walk in the gates and you see police, when you go to the canteen and you buy a pie, when you see the cheerleaders on the field, they're all talking to someone and using a timesheet to make sure that everything is going off at these big events without a glitch. And that person was me at the Sharks um, and it was all again just so fortuitous for me and so lucky and blessed that that was my in was that it all started because I saw a video and I thought I could do something a little bit better the next thing you know whenever there's a fight happening down on the hill the police are on the, <laughs> the police are in my ear saying hey what do you want us to do about this well like I mean even if I had done nothing else in my career except for just go to the NRL and just be at the Cronulla Sharks I would have been pretty happy with mm. um, with how that broke for me. And at that point, journalism kind of started to fade away a little bit because I recognized then Twitter was kind of starting to take off. And I knew then that Twitter was going to be a bit of a problem for people who cared about journalism because what Twitter ultimately did was it turned everyone into a journalist. <laughs> like it, uh, yeah. if you had the ability to create an account to express what you wanted to, and even for players, it was there. It was an opportunity for for players to cut out the middleman to to remove journalists from the pictures and just say from their own accounts what they would like to. So by that point, journalism wasn't really a consideration for me anymore. I wanted to get involved in sports and digital management. So that was an interesting couple of years for me there. So can you tell me about the the Cronulla fans? Are they? Is there a certain type of you know fans? Because I know <laughs> when you think about because when I think about um, you know, South fans and doggies fans and you know, West doggies. Tigers fans. Is it 
yeah, there's a there's certain type of fans, you know. Um, yeah. If you and there's a certain look at some of some of them, but you know, when you go to the Shire, you go to Shark Park, you've got the Cronulla fans. Is there a certain type of fan, or is it pretty diverse, or what was it like for you? At the time I was there, so this is ten years ago now, right? Like it wasn't as diverse as it is now. Like I would walk down mm. the streets and I would feel like outside of the other players who played for the Sharks, I might be one of like 10 Polynesians in this whole flipping Shire <laughs> at the moment. Like, and it wasn't a bad thing either, right? Because mm. in some regards, it was, there was almost like a novelty to having this uh, like person like me kind of walking down the streets. And I think some of the people of Cronulla were like, oh, let's proudly say that we're a multicultural suburb now because look over there is this guy <laughs> it's this guy walking down the street so we've he's our of, token we've, yeah exactly he's a token guy and we're going to embrace him the same way that some people embraced obama whether it actually whether it actually changed anything about their core i don't know but like at least we can now say that we're not this aryan white only society and and i actually loved living down by the beaches so for me i didn't care what people thought because i was just so happy to be there but yeah. the fans themselves um maybe this is biased but uh i really appreciated so many of them um they're, they're probably just like every other fan base like you've got your your 95 percent of your fan base who are just well behaved very civil great people there's your four percent of your fan base which is probably like your over-the-top diehards who sometimes yeah go a little bit um get a little bit too enthusiastic and then there's that one percent which is just like man what are you doing like calm down or get out um but they seem to be true of all fan bases the one thing i will say about sharks fans is that uh, you know it took 50 years for that fan base to win a premiership um so they're pretty resilient as as a group and and there's there's something so nice about shark park like i don't know too many stadiums anymore that have that same vibe as like Shark Park does. The stadiums that come to mind immediately are probably like Leichhardt and yeah. and Belmore. These really old stadiums that it's a little bit like Fenway Park in in America for baseball. Like when you go to Fenway Park, you know that you're not going to a flash fancy stadium. You're going to like something that was built a long time ago, and your chairs are going to be uncomfortable and they're probably going to break. Uh, and the toilets probably aren't going to flush when you're there, but it's got like that feel, really, yeah. Yeah, it's got that really suburban feel to it. And I think rugby league is at its best when it's played in those suburban grounds, when you've got the community kind of all rallying in. And hopefully, you know, we're moving towards bigger stadiums these days. Hopefully we don't lose, I guess, that part of rugby league's fiber. Yeah, no, 100%. And um, man, that's awesome. You know, was it harder for you in your role when the sharks weren't doing as well or how were the what year was what were you were you working there i was there 11 and 12 uh they okay. did not how, do how they, they did not do very well <laughs> either year <laughs> uh and it was it was a bit tough like crowds were not as high as they should be and if anyone like if you talk to enough people from the shire they'll tell you that you know one of the things that is synonymous with shark park is rain so mm. um often very wet down there especially on a saturday night for whatever uh, weird reason um so there was a little bit of that that we had to kind of put up with and can contest with but on the whole um people understood that it was a bit of a transformation period for the sharks and that you know then they, they were probably due 
for a tough spell. The Sharks are one of those teams that have historically been good for yeah. a few years and then they've been not so good for a few years. And that was a, a not so good. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> it's a great segue into, into, I guess, kind of what happened for me because by the end of the second year, right, one of the things about, about so many people, but this is also true for me, is that I, I can get a little bit itchy after a couple of years. And if I don't feel like I'm progressing as an individual, um, either at home as a father and as a husband or in my professional career, I always kind of look for the next thing to do. And I felt that pretty quickly at the NRL. Like I was appreciative that the Sharks had brought me in. I was appreciative of the responsibilities that they'd given me. But by the end of that second year of 2012, I started to think to myself, oh, I wonder if there's anything else I can do here. Like what's the next level for me now? I've, I've worked for my favorite rugby league team. I've had, you know, I've gone on trips with these players they've trusted me to go and build relationships with players and to call these nrl stars my peers so what do i do from here like what could top this and that's when basketball australia called me basketball australia is the governing body for basketball in this country uh it's mm -hmm. located in melbourne and that's i guess the team the body that takes care of australia's olympic basketball teams so the boomers the opals and at the time, it also was responsible for running the NBL and the WNBL. So the two big basketball competitions there. So they had kind of looked at some of the stuff that I had done with the Sharks and they had someone that was getting ready to move on. And again, um, through a very blessed situation, they just kind of called me out of the blue and said, look, we'd love to interview you. Would you mind just flying down to Melbourne for a day so that we could talk to you about some digital things that we've got going on and i ended up getting on a plane that day going down doing an interview with no intentions of like i had no expectations of it because i kind of didn't really know what i was getting into and i was I, although i i started to question what the future held for me at the sharks in terms of my career aspirations i probably didn't have any intentions of leaving um it was a great area we lived right by the beach and i had um reason to believe that good things were on the way for the sharks but I ended up feeling as though it was the right time to, to move and it was the right opportunity. So I picked my family up. We went down to Melbourne and six months after we went to Melbourne, turned on the TV and there it is, the scandal that kind of changed, <laughs> that kind of changed everything. And, and I had people from Sydney calling me, like people from Sydney newspapers were going through the list and looking at every single person who was on the Sharks payroll at the time and just trying to get word. And I'll say this, I said it then, I'll say it now. If there was something happening at the club, it was happening outside of us. It wasn't happening around us yeah. because I think Stephen Dank was the name that was thrown out. And I never saw that guy once around there. So I guess to loop back to your uh, question, Moss, no, I was not there when that happened. But I definitely, <laughs> I felt, and part of me felt um, grateful that I wasn't there at the time because. I kept in touch with some colleagues that were still there and their life became a living hell during, during all of that. Um, so, but, but also I, I, there was a part of me that almost wished I could be there to be another supportive uh, person for the people who were going through all that stuff. Um, but I guess the opportunity to go down to Melbourne and to do all of those other things was just another, another fortunate um, pathway for me in my career. Yeah, and I guess we've already 
I guess flowed on to the the next where we've talked. You've gone from you know working with the, the NRL and the Sharks into basketball, and man, if you haven't been to an NBL game uh, like a basketball game, you don't really know what the atmosphere is like. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's actually it's pretty it's really good. Um, like the fans are actually you've, they've got some really good diehard fans. Um, you know the atmosphere is really good. Well, has it always been that way? Did did you have to change up a few things for yourself, or so? Also, like you. Firstly, you're right. The atmosphere at, at basketball games is is really good because so much of what we do here is influenced by hip hop culture that is kind of prevalent in NBA games. So people over here mm. now will just watch what NBA teams are doing with their halftime entertainment, with their timeouts, and we'll try and replicate that as best we can um, with our own little tweak on certain things. But at Basketball Australia in the governing body, it was a little bit different for me because I went from the Cronulla Sharks, which is what we would call the club level, where you are responsible for, for the entertainment, go, going up to, I guess, a governing level where you actually have to be impartial and now you represent the whole league. So I, yeah. I couldn't really have a favourite NBL team, even though I did. The Sydney Kings have always been my team. It wasn't helpful for me to tell people while I was at Basketball Australia, that that was my team because I was expected to equally create initiatives that represented the benefit that that benefited all 10 NBL teams that were there at the time and the eight WNBL teams that they had. And so the entertainment was not my responsibility, but we definitely had ways to influence things and, and teams would come to us and say, have you seen anything that we can borrow or or use so it was nice to be in in those conversations but i guess the reason the the lesson the big lesson that i learned from my my three years inside basketball australia is uh, probably that if you if you don't speak your mind at times when it's appropriate for you to speak your mind you know you, you can miss out on some pretty big opportunities to make change and to make difference and i think it's kobe bryant who said you know, someone, I think it's one of his quotes where he said, you miss all the shots that you don't shoot. Um, and I, there were times at Basketball Australia where um, I had to maybe break character and say to someone, I don't think that you, what you just said is right. You know, you wouldn't do it in a rude way. You wouldn't do it like my career, yeah. like my careers teacher did to me when I was in school. <laughs> you would just simply say, I hear what you're saying, but I think maybe there's an alternate way to do things. So Basketball Australia gave me I guess was my real stepping stone because at the Cronulla Sharks, when I look back at my time there, I feel like I was a little bit more of a shill. Someone asked me to do something and I would do it straight away. And Basketball Australia was that time that I began to really feel a little bit of confidence in myself as a professional and probably stamp my authority on a couple of different things. And the experience culminated for me when I was asked to go with the Boomers and the Opals teams to the World Cup. That was my highlight at my time at, at Basketball Australia. So I became the one-man media band for the Boomers and the Opals at the World Cup. And my poor wife, I, uh, I left her back in Sydney with our, our three kids. One of them was a newborn. Uh, she wasn't even one yet uh, when, when I left, but she was good and supportive of it. And I took off to Europe for about three months with the Boomers and the Opals team um, to put to film and be the media liaison for the team that were over there 
And it was so funny because we would create content and we would post it almost every day. By we, I mean, I would do all of that. And there would be feedback coming in from people saying, how many people did we send over there to film all of this? Because this looks pretty, <laughs> pretty like good. And we never answered the question because we never wanted to, you know, sound like the little person. fish, but it was just me that was over there doing all of that. And some of those videos, you know, maybe we can post a link to some of those things that, that I created yeah, there. But I think my, what that, that was just an experience and that was experience I've never had anywhere else and, and never had since the ability to be on the plane in the bus with NBA players. Like these are players like Joe Ingalls, Dante Exum, Matthew Dillavadova, who's just come back to Australia, Aaron Baines. Like I'm sitting here with Man. people that I see on television all the time. And now I'm having breakfast with them every morning. And now I'm having dinner with them every night. And as often as someone back in Australia wants to interview them, it's coming through my phone. So there's a level of trust that you learn to build up with these professional athletes. And I was given some pretty sound advice. Like even before we left on that trip, we were down in Canberra for a training camp. And I remember sitting at the breakfast table and I was sitting by myself. And the assistant coach of the Boomers at the time was Luke Longley. Famous Luke Longley, no played way. with Michael Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. And he came, he came over to me while I was eating breakfast. And, you know, we, there was a little bit of small talk, but then he pretty quickly got to the point that he wanted to make with me, which was, he said to me pretty bluntly, he's like, if you want the players to do whatever it is you want them to do with the media, you need to find ways to contribute to the team outside of your own role. And what he was basically saying was when there was training sessions there and the players are throwing their jerseys into the middle of the court for someone to come and pick it up and take to the laundry, you know, that had, I had to be willing to do that. I had to be willing mm. to become part of the team. Like when practice finished and there was one player who just wanted to stick around and shoot some shots by himself after practice to get some extra reps in. I needed to be willing to stick around and just get rebounds for this guy for 20 minutes, half an hour after. Um, when someone needed to go and collect the laundry from the, the laundry <laughs> baskets after games, you know, it, he said Luke Longley's advice to me was just contribute in ways outside of your own role. And you'll find that the players will do any interview that you want them to do. And he was right. And I think the lesson that I took away from that was that, in our culture in particular, right? Like, not that it's unique to our culture, but I do feel like it's a real big part of our culture. We, we do a good job of trying to help and support people that are around us that we think we can give a hand to. Uh, and those uh, characteristics, those traits and those attributes are super helpful in the real world. Uh, the ability to just, kind of put your hand up and say, can I take that for you upstairs? Or is there anything that you need? Not everyone's willing to do it. And culturally, I think we're in an, this is one of those areas where we have an advantage um, over some of the things that are going on is because we were raised to, um, it's, it, yeah, you're right. It's our way, right? Like you see someone having a bit of a hard time, you just go and help them out and, and do all these things and you just do what you can. To, to chip in, in in different ways. So at this World Cup campaign, I started off with the Boomers, went to places I never thought that I would ever visit in the world. We started off, we 
we went to Lithuania, Finland, um, Sweden, little Polynesian guy who got told from his career teacher that he would never be a journalist is suddenly the lead journalist for the thing. And, you know, we went to the Canary Islands, went to Spain, all these beautiful places. And then I finished with the Boomers and there was a bit of a gap. There was like a one week gap before the women, the Opals team came, was due to come over to Europe. And so my work said, well, what do you want to do here? Do you want to come home uh, for two days and just be at home after which you're probably going to need to go straight back or do you just want to stay over in Europe for a week? So I got an opportunity to just hang around London for, for a week doing uh, not a lot outside of what I wanted to do. And then the, the women's team arrived and I was in Paris, Turkey, Italy. And again, sometimes you have to make your own luck. I didn't go to university. I didn't, I had the opportunity to go to university. I Hmm. chose not to go to university because at the time I wanted to serve my church mission. Uh, And when I came back from university, probably time for me to just make some, uh, when I came back from my mission, it's probably more important for me to make a little bit of money than it was to go to university. So I just took whatever jobs I could, but you know, sometimes if my experience has taught me anything, it's that if you want it bad enough and if you're willing to back your experience, things can happen and doesn't matter if a teacher in high school tells you you're not going to do it. And it doesn't matter if you don't have the qualifications that a person is looking for. You can force the issue on so many of those things. And those experiences with the boomers and with the opals, uh, Liz Cambridge, who's probably the most recognizable. Oh, I had opportunities to, to be there with her and with Penny Taylor and these real Australian icons. Like these are just experiences that I never, ever thought that I would have. And I don't take them for granted either. Um, and, and all of that just brought me back to, to Sydney when Fox Sports came around three years after I'd left for Melbourne and said, look, we like what you did over there. Can you come over here now and, and come home and kind of do that, but across all of our sports. So um, again, just the way everything has broken has just been crazy and and some of it has been a lot of luck that's for damn sure i definitely acknowledge luck's hand in in what i've been able to do but if there was something that i could say and i often do say when i'm invited to talk to some of my cousins who still have that south auckland vibe about them right there's like it's it's a bit rough (laughs) when i it's a bit rough when i go over there and you know they will sometimes look at me like i'm a spoiled child who kind of got everything that he ever wanted but you know this was not given to me and it rarely is mm. to to people you know from our polynesian circles particularly over here in australia like you got to take what you want um and i feel like i've i've had the opportunity to do that because i guess when those when those moments came i was ready to grab them <laughs> well that's the biggest thing yeah you need to back yourself um i think sometimes again coming from a, a Polynesian culture where, you know, it's the advantage where we're, like you said, we're, we're good at helping people out. We're good at being just genuine and real and just checking in on each other. But when it comes to, you know, showing, you know, our strengths and how good we are and our, our good works, we kind of downplay it or we kind of just hide it um, just so we're not, you know, trying to be too far ahead um, or yeah. being too much in the spotlight. I don't know if you found that yourself as well sometimes with, you know, our family members or our circles. 
No, it's a good point, right? Because when we do things, and this is not to, you know, I've got to be mindful that I don't sound just so full of gas at the moment, but oftentimes mm. when we do things, we're not doing it for recognition. We're not helping, we're not, we're not helping people out so that we can go and post on Facebook. Hey, I just went and did this for that person there. We're doing it because, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do and we just want to help someone out. Um, and I always thought that there were some roles in my career where unless you shouted about your victories, no one would ever recognize it and that you were doing things for, for just the heck of it that, that they wouldn't be recognized. But I found that living through some of the circumstances that I've lived through, people always kind of recognize, even if you don't take credit for it, which we're not very good at, I don't think, as a, yeah. as a culture. We're not very good at putting our hands up and say, like taking photos of us going and giving a bunch of flowers to someone else um, because it's not why we do <laughs> those things mm. a lot of times. Um, but yeah, like I've never had any problems with just doing things and, and not really expecting any recognition from it. And sometimes definitely in the corporate world, because I'm in a corporate world, I've been in a corporate world for a few years now. Oftentimes it will go unrecognized unless you're willing to, to say something about it. Um, and I guess that just is where it comes down to the individual, right? Like, why, why are you in the situation you're in? Like, are you, are you there to uh, be a good person and to do what you need to do? Or are you there to climb the ladder? If you're there to climb the ladder, then maybe you do need to um, take, be a little bit more vocal about the things that you've contributed to an organization and or its culture. But if you're just there and there is, there is genuine power in just doing things for the right reason. Um, recognized or unrecognized uh, there's there's genuine um, joy that I think a person gets that is worth more than any money that a person could could give them for their job and and it was something that I had to to pass through in, in conversations with my wife which was you know we would have conversations about what I was doing for work and I don't know if either of you two Vita Ramos have been like this but sometimes there are harder conversations where it comes down to well what are we doing with our lives here would you rather jardian would you rather work a, an okay paying job that you really really loved or would you rather work a high paying job that you really disliked and mm. it's it's a question that i like to ask different people all the time because um the answers can vary from from person to person can i can i ask that I know this is your show and that you get to ask the questions, but, but yeah. have you been in those situations yourselves where you've, you've had to choose between those two? Boss, do you want to, do you want to go first? Then I'll go second. Um, yeah. So interesting, interesting question. So for me, I've, yeah, I've kind of sort of faced that, um, yeah, during my lifetime as well, uh, finished school and, you know, the whole tradie thing, you know, eventually if you put in the years and, and finish your apprenticeship, you know, you'll, you'll eventually um, get that money. And then, so I was uh, doing a bit of welding with my dad at the time. And, and the goal was, you know, um, finish the apprenticeship, become a boiler maker. But I was doing security on the side, right? And when I was welding, I just hated it, you know, because it's 40 degrees sometimes and you've got a fan blaring on you. You've got your heavy overalls and, you know, you're just working around heat. So you smell like metal. You're just sweating all the time. But the money was pretty decent as well. But on the other hand, security for me, it was, you know, a cleaner job, you know, probably not getting as much. Um, but I enjoyed 
you know, doing what I was doing, you know, socialising, you know, hanging out with a, a group of boys similar minded to yourself um, as well. Um, but I ended up, yeah, uh, I, I used to look at security as a dead end job. And the reason why I worked too was uh, advice from my dad because my, my first son was born as well. But eventually, um, sometimes I, I drive all the way to my welding job, which was like an hour away from where I lived. And I hated it that much, even though the money was decent and it was good that I'd call in sick outside work and I'd drive an hour back home. <laughs> like I just, yeah, <laughs> mentally, <laughs> mentally it just used to play with me, you know. Um, <laughs> but then one of, one of the boys that actually said, oh, how about you thought, have you ever thought about doing it full time? And, you know, I wrestled with it quite a fair bit. Um, you know, after a couple of months, I decided, you know what, I enjoy it. So yeah, I ended up taking the pay cut to nice. go and do security. But again, that um, going that route ended up leading me down different paths where, you know, I've been able to be, you know, somewhat successful um, in the roles that I've been doing until this day. So, yeah, all in all, I ended up taking the pay cut to do something yes, that I did uh, before. So, my that's, man. that's me. That's me too. You know, it's, it's crazy because I remember growing up, my dad would always get me to, to strive to be the best, but also... Um, he'd always be like, well, how much are you getting? How much are you getting paid an hour? Because he'd want me to make sure I'm making as much money as I can because he knew, well, I guess his knowledge coming from the islands to Australia was that if you have money, you have comfort. Um, so chasing that money would provide you with more comfort. Um, and being a, a Polynesian, we're very much on, you know, sacrificing and, you know, serving others. So my mindset initially was always about, you know, finding the highest paying job and making sure that, um, you know, I chose that route as opposed to pursue happiness, if that makes sense. It's not about happiness. It's about, you know, how can you get the best best job for your family so you can provide for them? Um, and similar to Moss, uh, same route, uh, we found ourselves in um, just something that we enjoy. Um, and that passion actually drove us, again, to, to both being managers uh, within our own right. Um, you know, we, we look after, you know, large teams, we run events, um, we're, we're trainers with conflict management, we train people on counterterrorism. like there's a broad spectrum. And when we talk to people like, oh, you do all that kind of stuff? Um, it was our passion that kind of brought us there. And our passion actually brought us to jobs now that pay us more than I guess the initial jobs that we were looking at. Um, but we we never thought it. I guess it would happen that way. So does that answer the question, Jody? Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it, and and I I appreciate you both of your perspectives there because I, I don't think they're all too dissimilar for mine too. Like, mm. I, like I just think life is so short, right? Like, if you work these jobs that you really dislike for a lot of money, um, like when I had those experiences at Basketball Australia and with the Cronulla Sharks, they were they were fantastic, but like I was, I was not getting paid a lot of money when I was doing that. And my, my pay was in the opportunity experiences that I was having with these people. Now I'm part of that, kind of at a point where I'm in a situation where I'm making more money, but you know, it's not necessarily uh, stimulating me in ways that, that my previous roles were. And I, and I will sometimes wonder, you know, what's worth more to me, the satisfaction of, you know, doing something that you care about, that you're passionate about, or money to put the family in situations that, you know, we probably wanted to be for a while. And there's, I don't think there's a right answer to it either, right? Like this, this changes, yeah. this changes from 
person to person. And it's okay if a person prioritizes money over everything. Some people definitely will say that money makes their life experience better <laughs> and, yeah. and, more and more power to them for it. So yeah, in just interesting perspectives. Yeah. Uh, for us, you know, we're, we're leading, you know, our, our catch up today um, into, you know, you've, you've had quite a few roles and like you said, you've been blessed and there've been so many life experiences that not many people, not even us have been able to um, experience. Um, and you've been able to also do some, some passion projects. I know you talked about Fox sports and I'll get you to give us maybe a, a quick, um, you know, just run down on your role into there. But I guess I, I want to, I guess, learn about how did that lead you uh, into the passion project uh, that we're talking that I want to really want to talk about, <laughs> which is the, the crew app. It, it's so funny how like, and, and I hope this conversation has brought this out that one small thing from a previous job leads to the next thing, which leads to kind yeah, of like definitely. The next thing, those, like, those odd conversations. And that was the situation for me at Fox Sports as well. So Fox Sports, the culture of Fox Sports back at the time that I joined there, so this is around 2015, I was there for five years. The culture of Fox Sports then is something that I had not experienced anywhere else. It was amazing. Um, the quality of the broadcast was always really high. They had, I think, seven different channels at the time. They had Fox News, Fox League, Fox Footy, Fox Cricket, Fox Sports 1, 2, 3, all of that stuff, right? So big, big empire, really, and a big part of the News Corp family. And for a person who grew up caring about sport, like that was probably Mecca for me. Like that was my, okay, I didn't think that it would get better for the chronology from the Cronulla Sharks, but it did at Basketball Australia. And mm. I thought, oh, it probably doesn't get better than Basketball Australia, but it did at Fox Sports. And the game was just raised. I was actually able to spend a little bit more time with my family, which my family really needed. I think my wife really kind of needed me home a little bit more. And while I was at Basketball Australia, I was just kind of here, there and everywhere, like Europe for three months. Um, so towards the end of my five years at Fox Sports, we started working on a few new features that relied on uh, data science and artificial intelligence. So I started getting into some tech conversations with the Googles and the AWSs, which are the Amazons of the world. And we had this, mm. we had this one crazy idea, right? Which I don't even remember where it started, but we were watching a cricket game and cricket's not really my sport. Like, I don't mind cricket, but I'm probably not going to watch it. It's a pretty <laughs> long sport. And we were watching a cricket game. And it was because of that attitude that I had where we were sitting there. And I just remember making this comment to someone, which was, wouldn't it be cool if we had a product for someone like me that actually told them when a wicket was going to fall so that they didn't have to watch this part of the broadcast and they could just come in when it was about to fall? Yeah. So we had this, this thought, right. Which kind of started off like that. And, and then the conversation progressed like, Oh, what if we could actually predict 10 minutes before something happened that it was going to happen based on artificial intelligence and a hundred years worth of data on cricket. And so we brought Google in and we basically created this algorithm that we call Monty and Monty had 94 different inputs to it historical and data-driven inputs that would go into this machine, I guess, machine learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence, which basically took in things like the time of the day, 
the weather, the type of bowler that the person was facing, the type of bat that a person was using. And these 93, 95 different inputs would basically spit out a number which said, we think that there's a 70 to 80% chance this person is going to get out in the next what? 10 minutes using a whole bunch of historical data. And firstly, we built it right because we wanted to see if we could do that. And, and so we built this engine with Google's help uh, because they were pretty keen to get into this space, right? Because what if in soccer, mm. what if in the big World Cup, what if in rugby union, when the Wallabies were playing the All Blacks, we could tell people five minutes before the, probably the All Blacks were going to score. Um, <laughs> I, I can tell you, I can tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. What if we could tell people five minutes before that they should tune into Fox Sports now because we think something is going to happen. Um, and that was the point, right? It wasn't just to create this cool technology. It was actually to be able to say, well, we know that there's a lot of people who probably aren't going to watch something unless they know something interesting is going to happen. So we created this, this algorithm, Monty, and firstly, it worked. Um, with 80% accuracy, we could tell 10 minutes before a wicket was going to fall that someone was going to get out. And once we knew that it worked, we started to think about what we could do with this data science, with this machine learning to make more people watch the shows, to make more people subscribe to Foxtel. And so we thought, okay, here's what we're going to do. Now that we know with a high level of confidence that this algorithm is right, Whenever Monty is saying something is going to happen in the, in the cricket match, we're going to buy up every single ad space on YouTube that we can. We're going to buy every single billboard um, in the city, the digital billboards, that kind of change of rotation. We're going uh... to buy all of that. We're going to allocate. We're not going to spend any more marketing money on just like these ads here, there and everywhere. We're going to save all of our money and only spend it. And the message we're going to tell people is we think something is going to happen in this match now tune into Fox Sports to see if we're right. And that just kind of brought people in the door at the right moments. People like me who would never typically watch a full cricket game now had a tool mm. that just said, now's the time to tune in. And, you know, because cricket is such a worldwide sport, even though someone like me doesn't really appreciate it, it got picked up by people overseas. There were articles written about it and it took off. So just like at the Sharks, just like at Basketball Australia, I guess doors opened up for me that I never thought would open up. And so we had people who you know, eventually came in and think, do you think you could do this for all sports? Do you think you could do this for football? And, and that was all really well and good. And I guess that was my first dabble in data science at that level. Um, and data science is so key uh, in this, this app that we want to get to talking about, right? Because it's, mm. it's actually data science that drives the whole crew app now for those who don't know what crew is crew is a crew is an app that monitors a person's mental wellness and notifies trusted family and friends when their wellness appears vulnerable and the way that we determine whether a person's wellness is vulnerable is using the same principles that we use to create that cricket algorithm right based on all of the based on all of these things that we know about a person's answer to a certain question we believe that their wellness signal is probably in this range here. And the ranges can vary from your signal is either strong to good to okay to low. Um, those are the four, I guess, areas. And when a person's signal is low, we kind of ping out 
notifications to everyone in their crew, or everyone in their trusted group saying, um, hey, we think today might be a good day to just give uh, Moss a call. We don't tell people why. We don't tell people what's going on because we kind of don't know uh, mm. what's going on. We just know that there's something happening here and maybe a friend could go and get involved. So that Fox Sports experience, building that out where we won a ton of awards for the innovation there um, led to me saying, I bet we could probably take this thinking and apply it in, in different ways that would help people out. And the actual yeah. catalyst for building this out was when the first lockdown hit, I wanted to create something that would allow me to stay in touch with my family um, mentally because I knew I wasn't going to be able to see them for a while. So this started off as just a passion project, right? Like how do I build something that um, helps us stay in touch? And I think a big part of, we've spoken a bit about Polynesian culture, right? And about some of the um, Nisianisms that we have uh, within our culture. And I think, one of the big one is that, you know, oftentimes within our culture, we're okay with being the helper, but we don't want to be the helped, right? Like yeah. this is one of the things where we are happy to go and give service to other people, but we probably feel a little less comfortable about being the receiver of that service. And this is not like, I don't think, again, that's probably something that's not unique to our culture i'm sure a lot of people probably feel like that in the world mm. and the purpose of the app one of the things that that i really wanted to solve because at this point in my career i would say that i'm a product manager and product managers uh, tech product managers their their main job is to find the problems that exist in society and try and create new products that solve for these problems and the problem that i saw um towards the end of my time at fox sports was that you know i had the opportunity to speak to these big CEOs and these board members. And um, like I mentioned before, these really strong leaders in the world. And I have no problem talking to them. But when someone asks me how I'm doing, I have I, like really struggled to talk about my own nothing. feelings. Yeah. Um, and so I, I noticed that no matter how well-spoken I could be in these, in these big sessions and look like, when I think about some of the career opportunities that I've had, I think about the fact that at Fox Sports, I was able to talk to Rupert Murdoch and give him a bit of a lay yeah. of the land. And, and I was never, I was never phased by, you know, the, that task to do that. And I was on the strategic team that helped convince Foxtel and say to them, if you continue to have cable only services, you're going to lose because the streaming's coming in. And you either need to you need you need to get on board with this, and that's why Ko and Binge exist right now. Was because our team yeah, kind of yeah. said to them, "It's time to go. It's time to go streaming." And so I never had a problem with that. But when it came to talking about my own health, my own mental wellness, my own mental health, oh, I struggled uh, phenomenally, and I knew I wasn't the only one to do that. So that was the problem: is that the problem I was trying to solve is that it's hard for us to talk about our own feelings when we're having a bit of a hard time. But also, it's hard as a friend to know when the right time to speak to someone that you think is having a hard time is and to know what to say to them um, if you think that they're having a hard time. And so what I wanted to do to solve for those two problems was build a product that kind of sat in the middle as the messenger between people so that these people over here who were having a hard time didn't need to self-initiate the conversation and put their hand up and say, I need some help right now because you know what? So many of us just won't do it. We won't put up our hand mm. and say that we have help. And on the other hand, 
like I wanted to help out friends who had a bit of a feeling and a thought that maybe someone that they know is going through a hard time, but they don't know how to start the conversation with them. So Crew was created to be this thing in the middle, which when a person answered these questions related to wellness that indicated that they might be having a hard time, they didn't need to put their hand up. Crew would be the thing that would say to their friends, hey, we think that maybe it's a good opportunity to reach out. Because, you know, like part of the problem with some of the things like Are You Okay Day, I don't want to speak negatively about good initiatives because Are You Okay Day has helped a lot of people. Hmm. But, but, but the problem with something like Are You Okay Day is that if you don't answer the right way at the time someone asks you the question, the action is actually on you to go back to that person when you are feeling um, down. And, and again, we just spoke about that, right? Like, we're just probably not going to do that. Not because we're scared to talk about our feelings, but we just don't want to burden these people over here on the other side. It's mm. more about that. And so the thing about crew is that it's designed. So rather than the conversation having to go from here to the person struggling, it actually goes this way from the person who's nearby to the person in need. And it doesn't just happen randomly. It's like, we actually know there's a problem over here. Go. And using data science, using like we worked with psychologists and uh, we worked with not just like general psychologists. We went and found child psychologists. We went and found marital psychologists and trauma psychologists. And we created a group that helped us put together this algorithm that we call Yana. And Yana, when you use crew, every single time you use it, there'll be four questions that the app will ask you, or at least try to ask you. Those four mm. questions, the last question is always the same. It's a self-assessment. But the first three questions, what people might not realize about crew is that the first three questions are related to a person's biological, psychological, and social health, which many experts believe mental wellness is sits in the middle of. Mental wellness is probably the combination of all of those things rolled into one. And so you don't, you don't probably, if you're a user of crew, you probably don't realize what's going on when you answer all of those questions. But what's actually going on is a little bit of that whole cricket thing, which is we're accumulating data and we're learning the right questions to ask you. And when we think there's a problem, we're going to go and ping the people that you trust to know about that problem. And it's been a really interesting, it's been a really interesting journey since we've, we've done that because the algorithm that we built is so sophisticated now that outside of the first time a person uses the app, the chances of you ever seeing the same question as someone else after that first time is now literally one in a million. Um, the app uh. doesn't just ask the same people the same questions every day based on how you've answered the day before. It's almost becomes like those treasure and adventure books. Like so outside of that first session, the combination of questions becomes different for every single person based on some of the things that they're going through. We felt like that was the best way to create what we kind of philosophically hoped was a psychologist in your pocket, asking you the right questions at the right time and letting people you trust know when you're having a bit of a hard time. So that is crew in like a two minute, three minute nutshell. And we've just, yeah, it's been live for about a month now. 
and the response to it has been like just beyond anything that we could have hoped for and it is a passion project right like i'm working another full-time job at the moment this yeah. is just this is just something that i do at night time which started off because i wanted to help out my boy i just wanted to keep in touch with family and friends but we've launched it globally um, and we've had some amazing stories coming in from people who have told us that crew has helped them unearth some problems in their families that they just never knew existed um we had uh, someone let us know that through crew they were able to better deal with the situation you know an, an unfortunate situation that had happened for them at a vet with a with a loved pet um and so these things that you typically wouldn't go in and, and the, again probably wouldn't go and tell your boys right that oh man we just had to put our pet down like it's a hard thing to start that conversation, but you just tell the app how you're feeling. You don't have to tell the app that you put your pet down. The app is going to learn what is the right question to ask you. And you're probably not going to be in a good space when that happens. And then the app will just let everyone else know. Um, so when this person, when this happened, this person's friends didn't know why it was that they were reaching out to them for, because the app won't ever tell or share that stuff. They just knew that they had a friend in need. And so these stories are starting to come in now from all over the place. And we're, we're fortunate that um, venture capitalists are starting to ask us a little bit about, you know, can they get involved with the app? Can they ascertain, can they invest in, in things moving forward? So I'm really proud of, of what is going on. And, and I really hope that it continues to help um, normalize or at least destigmatize talking about our mental health because in the ideal situation right the end game is that if this thing if this app does what it needs to do you'll get to a point where you won't need the app anymore talking about your feelings will just be commonplace it'll be normal like when you have mm -hmm. a hard time and when you just need sometimes when you just need to have an event you won't have a problem just saying to your boys man you know my wife just said to me <laughs> like you won't <laughs> you won't have a hard time doing that because through the app, the, the hope is that we can normalize some of those um, challenges. And I think it's probably coming in at a time when the normalization of mental health conversations is happening anyways, right? Like mm. we're, we're acknowledging mental health as being a real thing these days, much better than we did maybe five, 10 years ago. So all in that, that might be uh, good, good timing on the apps part, but sometimes I, I pinch myself when I think that the original reason for doing this was really just because I'd just come out of doing a project that Fox Sports that used data science and wanted to roll that into a passion project to help family out. And now we're in conversations where, you know, we've got hundreds of crews signing up, we've got thousands of users on the app and we, we have like thousands of check-ins happening on the app. So people trust the app enough to um, ask the right questions to tell the right people. And um, it, it's been a pretty fun, uh, if not tiring, <laughs> project to work on. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, because I know you and, you know, you, you shared, you know, your vision and you shared it within your, your social media and your, um, your friends, I, I jumped on it and I, I told the boys and I'm like, man, let's, uh, let's give this a go because I really want to see, you know, what it's about. Um, but also then we, you know, possibility of us catching up and talking about, you know, how can this, um, you know, be a, a gateway and this, you've had a 
you've given us a perfect description on, um, you know, the reasoning on why it's so important to have these um, or have this app because mm. it provides us with ways and signals that we can just check in on our friends um, naturally without, you know, just checking in for no, not, not for no reason, but sometimes you're like, you just press for no reason or yeah. you're not too sure something's wrong where this one, it's a lot more genuine. Um, for me, I've really enjoyed um, the check-in, but also when you, when you build your own crew, you kind of see how the boys are going too. And I'm like, honestly, for me, um, when I, so I created a crew with Moss, Fale and myself, for me, when I see the boys are good and strong, I feel good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cool. But then when things are starting to look a bit low, they're on my forefront of my mind. I'm thinking about the boys. Yeah. You know what I mean? Amazing. Um, Amazing. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really cool story. And I think as we're kind of getting into a little bit more, Peter, like we're looking at some of the data that comes out and some of the data around what's happening inside the app is, is really amazing. Like we can essentially what we've done is, and we didn't think that we were doing this at the time, but through the data that's coming out of the app, um, we're learning a lot about the way that people will interact with each other. We're learning a lot about the desire that people have to help each other out. I mean, I think one of the things that I can share with you that we've learned is that any time a person's help signal has either gone up or any time someone's signal drops to low, the average time it takes that person to receive their first reach out from someone in their crew is a minute and 47 seconds. So no it's taking less than two minutes for a person who has been told, we think it's a good idea to reach out to that person. It's taking less than two minutes for the average person to receive the first reach out after they've done their questions. And that's the world that we wanted to create. Like a world where, because mm. you know how sometimes you feel like, like, are you okay day? I think for me, has almost become a victim of its own success because sometimes when I hear people ask me, like saying, are you okay on that one day of the year? I feel like, like, yeah, they're, like kind of, they they're, taking, they're taking the piss. <laughs> like, I feel like they're kind of yeah. taking the piss a little bit, right? Like, I don't know if they're sincere in, in asking me because, like, what if I said no? Like, I feel like most of them would be like, oh, oh, sorry about uh... that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> see ya. Um, whereas yeah. anytime you get an interaction through the app, it's because people genuinely want to to reach out to you because they could very easily just ignore it, right? So the only time that someone is reaching out to you is because they've taken the time to do it. And so we found that it's taking less than two minutes for people to receive that first reach out. And we found that um, I think it's 83% of people who receive a reach out a day uh, within a day of their signal dropping, their signal is improving. Um, within a week so most mm. people we're finding that human interaction in some instances is a better form of medication than medication itself and that's the bet that we i guess are trying to validate and we're going to continue to use the app because you know one of the things that we've in, unintentionally created but it now exists is we've created a wellness heat map of australia and new zealand right now we know which parts of australia are the parts where people are having a bit of a hard time. Um, oh. We know where these signals are coming from and we have the ability to inform governments and say, I know that you've got a mental health budget that you're looking to use to help people throughout Australia. Did you know, that, did you know that maybe here's where you should put some of that money? Like, did you know that rural Australia is having a hard time right now than Metro Australia? Um, 
And it, yeah, it's that, it's that type of thinking that we want to get to. We want to be able to take it to research companies who uh, have typically universities who have done studies linking the correlation between things like diet and mental health. We want to be able to say to them, we know that this process that you go through typically takes about a year and a fair bit of money to do these research studies. But through this app, if we tweak a couple of questions, you can do all of that like in two weeks with real-time data and a fraction of the cost. That's the type of stuff that I guess there's two layers to crew, right? There's the user layer, which is the interactions, the stuff that we talk about, but there's also yep. the data layer. What can we do to improve people's health based on the data that we kind of see? Like which parts of Australia right now are struggling? Well, we know which parts are based on the data that we're seeing. And it's that type of stuff that we hope we can translate into making people's lives better. <laughs> Yeah, 100%, man. Moss, did you, I guess, have any feedback or any thoughts um, in relation to the app and, I guess, how we've, you know, started our own little crew? Um, yeah, look, um, yeah, so, Jalen, when, um, when T brought it up, it was actually, um, to be honest, perfect timing, right? Um, going through some, some personal issues at home as well um, at the time. So what the app did with the regular check-ins, it actually, like, so it made me open up a bit to the boys, you know, about some of the issues that we're having. And, you know, they didn't know. They had no idea. Because like we were saying earlier, um, you know, as men, especially Polynesian men, we're really good at masking it, right? We're really good at, you know, offering the help, but sometimes not so good at receiving it too. So putting yourself in a, put myself in a bit of a vulnerable spot there um, and talking to the boys. And yeah, it was all off the back of the app. Because like you're saying, uh, a lot awesome. of... A lot of different questions and, and things like that, like questions no longer say, you know, are you happy with how fit you are? You know, are you happy with your, how how healthy you are? And that's one of the things that I was talking to, to the guys about is like, man, it's so good that they ask different questions and then you have to rate yourself. Mm. Um, you know, to be honest, at the start, I was a little bit wary. So, you know, yeah. every day I was tens, you know, flicking it yeah. all over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, no, at totally the start. Um, because again, you know, putting yourself on the, in, in the place of vulnerability, you know, you're not really too open to, to put yourself out there like that. So, yeah, man, after a while, we started trusting it. And, and yeah, man, I think the app is really good and I think it's really needed here. Um, the part about you saying, you know, the heat maps and the data, man, that that's such good data to have and it's only going to help and strengthen communities out there, you know? Like, especially, you know, if, it, if it's true what you're saying, like with rule and stuff, like... Obviously, in Metro, we have a lot of services available to us and, you know, yeah. it's just down the road exactly. and, you know, it's just a phone. But, you know, sometimes we rule, man, reception's not always great. You know, maybe the next part, point of, of service, it's, it's ages away, miles away, you know. So, no, nah, if, if um, yeah, government could inst could start investing in those areas where it's where it's much needed, man, off the back of your app, man, it's 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 awesome, you know. So, no, nah, lo love the app, Jordan, and, and, yeah, I'll, oh, I'll thanks, definitely man. sing its praises, man. I appreciate that. Appreciate it. And it, like, it's a good point, actually. You've given me something to think about because we know that there is still a barrier with the app, which is that the app will only ever work, Yana, the algorithm only ever works if people are willing to be vulnerable enough to answer the questions honestly. Like, it's not smart enough to know that a person is is gaming the system. Like, it, it, if a person puts in tens, tens, tens all the time, Yana is like work, the algorithm works under the premise that people are being honest and, and it doesn't have the smarts at the moment to pick up intentions just yet. Like we'll get there. <laughs> like it's yeah, coming. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad that you're, you've 
you've gotten to that point now where you can, can trust it. And again, like the combination of questions that you probably see most are different to everyone else in the crew based on, oh, wow. yeah, based on you. So they'll see their own questions related to stuff going on in their life. And I yeah. often find that the questions that I'm answering in crew often relate to my sleep um, yeah, because okay. I know that my sleep is terrible. And now the algorithm knows that my sleep is terrible too. And sometimes the recommendations that it will give to others are like, if it knows that my physical health is having a bit of a hard time, um, it will say to my friends who are going to reach out to me, we think you should reach out to Daddy. And by the way, if you go for a walk with him, maybe that will help more than anything else. So that's, yeah, I'm glad that it's doing that for you. I'm, I'm really happy about no, it. And all, yeah, and again, you know, when, when it asks you about your physical health questions and things like that as well, and again, it changes every day. So since, since the app as well, I started training as well. And like, to be honest, I've lost a bit of weight, man. You know, so I've lost, yeah. I've probably like in the past month and a half, I've lost about 12 kilos. And, what? you know, from when I, yeah, so from answering it, the way that I was answering it before, like, nah, actually my physical health, I'm not happy with it. You know, I'm not really, yeah. I haven't really been exercising regularly, you know, but now, yeah. you know, it's high eights, high nines. Yeah. Exercising every day. Yeah. I am happy with my physical health. So nah, man. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I always wondered like, is everybody getting the same questions on the same day or is it different for everybody? Because it kept asking me, like, have you been drinking soft drink lately? And, like, all these, like, questions about my diet. I'm like, come on, man. I hope the boys are answering these uh, honestly too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's the way that the the principle that we use is a principle called ele elevators and validators. And we created this principle with the psychologists. And the way that the app works is that basically there's broad areas that we'll play in um, physical health, sleep diet and if you answer one of those questions at the top level those big broad levels poorly then the app will basically can of all the hundreds of questions that the app could ask you next it's going to find ones related to that one that you just answered poorly to so oh, if you say gotcha. if you say that um as an example that you're not happy with your physical health and if you say that like give that a two then the next question the app is likely to ask you is are you eating okay? If you say the, if you give that another two, the app is probably going to go to, are you drinking enough water in the day? And if you answer that poorly, it takes three validators before the app will say, okay, we think we know what's going on here. We think that there's a like physical thing that we can do mm. over here. And it works the same in the psychological space. If a person answers something related to, I guess, security poorly, then the next question it'll ask them will be about, I guess, self-worth. And if they keep answering two questions after that poorly, the app will say, okay, we actually think Jardine's got a bit of an anxiety problem over here. So the, the algorithm is trained to kind of diagnose what's going on. So theoretically, if this is working right, neither of you, neither of us should be seeing the same combination of questions every day because it's programmed to learn about us individually and ask the right you. question wow. to us. Yeah. <sighs> Thanks to Fox Sports and the... Uh, Data science <laughs> that it opened me up to. Thank you, Monty. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. And now I feel a little bit like, you know, there's Matrix movies where like there's all the green numbers that are coming down. From oh, yeah, yeah. And like you kind of <laughs> got to know what's going on there. When I look at the data for crew, that's what I see is like a whole bunch of zeros and a whole bunch of like things there. And you can kind of start to see what's going on at certain points. And um, the next step for us, which we started to talk about, so I feel like we can talk about it here is that there are some schools who have asked us to help them um, no. create a version for kids. So we're currently working on Crew Kids at the moment, which 
it will be something that will help school teachers and school counselors know when one of their students is maybe having a hard day um, so that it can kind of intervene at the right time. But again, doesn't tell the teachers or the counselors what's going on, just says, maybe go easy on Jardian today. Man, I'll tell you uh, a quick story as well. So what, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, and I won't, I won't say the school or anything like that. Um, uh, my daughter came home and just had some weird stories. She said, oh, the teachers were all in the, were all in the um, staff room. Um, they kind of let us do whatever we needed to do today. All the teachers were crying. We just had a free day today. And my, my daughter's a bit of a storyteller as well, you know, so sometimes you have to take what she says with a grain of salt. But um, <laughs> yeah, anyways, um, found out later that... Uh, a newsletter came out to to my wife and I's email um, that one of the one of the students, you three students, passed away. You know, oh. um, without giving too much detail into it, but as you know, parents talk. So um, what en ended up happening was the year three student, um, yeah, hung himself, like committed suicide. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're just thinking like, wow, year three, so young. Yeah. Um, you know, and that started our end train of thought. So like with you talking about getting into the schools, man, it's um it's needed if you know, you you just sort of think, Man, what drives like someone so young to think that's the that's the way out, you know? Yeah. Um so no, if you guys are heading in that direction, I think it's um yeah, it's awesome. It's gonna yeah, be cool. I'm really sad to hear that because it's like so devastating for those families. And and my wife actually just told me today about something else that had happened at our school uh, with a parent, you know, that um, had 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 an experience like that. And so we think it's probably the right time to go there. And like, we don't really show too many people, but I don't know if you can see that, but this is where the kids version oh, is, yeah. is kind of looking oh, uh, something yeah, wow. now. So pretty simple. And with all of that Use stuff together, this is probably yeah. what a teacher is going to see. So oh, a teacher will see a awesome. version that kind of brings all that together. And again, there'll be some smarts in it. So what we're trying to do with crew kids is actually create, you know how you get your report cards at your end of term about how you did in math, how you did in science. We want to give teachers and counselors, maybe parents, we don't know about how far we go with this one because there's a fiduciary mm. relationship between teachers and, and sometimes parents are the cause of a person's bad thing. Yeah, so we don't, we don't want to necessarily flag it. But if this works properly, like those report cards that you get at the end of term through crew kids, we'll be able to create a live and real time report card on a person's mental health, a student's mental health, based on the answers that they have there, uh, which will change daily as students answer it. So this is the big world that I guess we're, we're hoping to push into. So kind of exciting times, a bit scary. I'm probably going to have to quit my job at a certain point if I want to do this properly. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> lots going on. You know, this, you know, you, you talk about artificial intelligence and we talk about technology all the time. And, um, you know, you, from your experience with Fox Sports, you know, we do that to enhance, you know, the entertainment side of things. And for us, as humans we we've we've come you know addicted or adapted towards technology so much that um you know social media is such a big thing um mm. you know and you know we try and project you know a certain persona or not even intentionally but you see you know the experiences that other people have yeah um and it could you know reflect on yourself and thinking oh why aren't i having these experiences why isn't my family like this and all the all these sorts of things 
um, as opposed to, and we've had conversations with some of our other guests, you know, growing up for us, it was like after school, we'd run to the park and we, you know, we'd play touch footy or we'd go down to the creek. And um, without the technology, we were out in the environment. Mm. Um, but sometimes being so connected, it kind of isolates us at the same time. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen yeah. that as well. Yeah, for sure. So totally resonates. Yeah. So with, um, you know, an app like this to be able to use technology uh, in such a way that we're, we're tapping into you know those distress signals mm. um like moss said um man uh, for me it's so hard to listen about uh, you know when i when i watch movies and all that kind of stuff if it's like adults and i know it's not real and all that kind of stuff it's fine but when it comes to kids you know my heart goes out to them. like it's, yeah. it, it it hits a lot differently for me because yeah because you know these these poor kids don't have um, they haven't experienced life. They haven't been given tools. They, we don't know whatever you know they've gone through in their lives. But yeah. you know, hopefully, you know, apps like this and conversations that we're having uh, is definitely making a making a change in their life as well. So I hope so, Peter. I mean, as a, I'll talk to my co-founders almost every other day, and there are so many conversations happening now with just people wanting to kind of get involved, take a piece of the pie, and that's all well and exciting, but. I will constantly remind them that we can never forget that the purpose of the and the mission, our mission statement that mm. we have up on our walls is that the mission of crew is to remove loneliness from vulnerable lives, not to remove challenges. Challenges are an important part of people's growth, right? We're not trying to remove mm. the challenges that people go through. We just want to make sure that when people are going through those challenges, that they're not necessarily going through the ones going through them themselves. So the mission of the app is just to remove loneliness from from vulnerable mentally vulnerable lives and every feature that you'll see added in because we'll still we're on the verge of bringing new things into the app um in january it's all geared around that like all we are trying to do is um remove that loneliness from people's lives so that they're not going through those hard harder times by themselves and we will have to remind ourselves of that even as we're doing the kids one like we're, we're not here to like as a startup sometimes you can get caught up in the whole startup thing and people will say mm. oh what's your company valued at right now and we've been fortunate to have people like google ventures and others come in and say this is what we think you're valued at and the number is probably more money than any of us could have ever thought we would own but we, we just need to remind ourselves and we try often to keep a check on our egos and a check on our intentions and just remind ourselves that we built this not to make money. We built this to, because I, as it is, I feel, I don't feel amazing about the idea of capitalizing mental health. Um, this is not something that was done to, um, to make money. It was something to do, that was done because we really believe that society has probably been an intentional or unintentional contributor to the downfall of mental health. And because of that, we think society can play a role in fixing that. And that's what crew is. It's, it's mobilizing the friend force really. Um, but, and, and that's the mission that, that it has is just to remove loneliness, not to remove challenges, just to remove loneliness from, from people's lives so that they're not going through those things by themselves. So we'll see how the journey, where the journey takes us from here. It's exciting. Yeah, but you know, 
you've definitely got you know three big supporters uh, from us and um you know i'm just you know learning from the boys and you know just learning from moss's experience man it's you know it's uplifting for me you know so amazing but but yeah awesome thank you so much for your time uh tonight jardin um you know for anybody listening out there if you're looking for the app you know have a look in the app store um it's spelled c-r-o-o um for crew app um and definitely give it a go uh, invite some people uh and just give it and just see just yeah it's easy for us to describe it but it's not until you actually use it you see how user-friendly it is but also the questions they're also they're kind of non-intrusive but like you said the background um information that you're able to get from it um is awesome and uh, yeah definitely I, I guess for yourself john have you got any last words or anything that you'd like to add before we finish up no i just appreciate appreciate you both having me on here i i I get a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when I feel like I'm talking about myself <laughs> a bit too much. And I, <laughs> I think I've done a bit of that, but I, I appreciate this. And this is the first time I've caught up with you Vita, in, in a while. So um, thank you for having me on. And, and if anyone has any questions, by all means, um, let me know and, and I'll do the best to answer them. Awesome. Well, um, big shout out to once again for Jardin for joining us. Uh, much love to Fali who couldn't make it tonight. But for all our listeners, just remember to kick back, stay ready, look sharp. <laughs>